Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right. Welcome back, everybody. My guest today is the amazing Regina Luis. Regina happens to be a fellow Hoffman teacher, and I, for one, consider myself lucky to be associated with such a resilient and powerful and bright and impactful spirit. But my friends, Regina is not just a Hoffman teacher. This woman is busy. In addition to being a Hoffman teacher, she's an author, a child advocate, a motivational speaker, and just one of the most charismatic, smart, and creative spirits I know. She's the author of two memoirs, Somebody's Someone and Someone Has Led This Child to Believe. Most recently, she's published her book, Permission Granted, Kick-Ass Strategies to Bootstrap Your Way to Unconditional Love. She's the co-executive producer, producer of the film, I Am Somebody's Child, the Regina Louise story. There's probably a whole lot more. I'll stop there. So excited to have you, Regina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sharon. What a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Hi, Regina. I'm so excited to have you here. Okay, let, let me start with this. Um, I always kind of like to start with the reason we're here. This is a Hoffman podcast. Let's go back to what brought you to the, to the Hoffman process. And in fact, when did you go to the Hoffman process? I, I don't even know when you went to the process. What a great question. Well, I was in grad school and I returned to school in my late 40s, which meant that I was a I was a graduate student in turning 50. And oh my God, exactly that right there. And I I was at this junction of who do I want to be when I grow up a second time? I returned to college for two reasons. One, because my son was flailing. And I said to him, you know what? I think I need to walk my talk as opposed to talking my talk. And, you know, he had said to me, how can you tell me to go to school when you were successful by not going? And I thought, okay. That I'm going to take that as a as somewhat of a dare, a provocation. And I said, you know, you're right. Let's let's just keep this real and I'm going to go back to school and finish ahead of you, you know. Traditionally that that's that's the thing to do. But more so I wanted to motivate him because he sustained a career game-changing leg injury. So he was not going to be able to play the amateur professional basketball league, but he needed something to compete against. So my returning to school 
was what motivated him. And as a result, he too then was able to finish. And he later said, thank you for that. So once I did that, I thought, okay, now what? <laughs> I'm through school. I got my kid. I did what I came to do, which was to, to, you know, make good on a vow I'd made when I was a young girl in foster care that one day when I had the resources and the support, I would return to school. So, you know, it was a a twofer. I kept my word with a vow that I'd made and I was able to use the experience to support my kiddo. And then it was, okay, now what? And so at the end of grad school, I received a third year fellow. I had been awarded a two-year fellow and then I was chosen for the third year, but I knew that I had outgrown grad school. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So the way that I made the decision is I attended Hoffman while I was on spring break. And when I was finished with my process, I knew I just couldn't go back. And I turned down that third year fellow and I just allowed myself to be with what I experienced at the Hoffman process. You know, some students take a year, they call it a gap year, where they go into the world and have experiences right relevant to the career. I took a gap year to metabolize the emotional experiences that I had as a Hoffman teacher. And so you went to Hoffman during your spring break. How did you even hear of Hoffman and what about it drew you in that moment in time? I had a partner in 2003. She and I owned a really incredible salon in Berkeley, California. And then our relationship dissolved. And at the time that it dissolved, it, it was one of those, it was just the most devastating personal loss that I had experienced as an adult. And during our uncoupling, if, if you will, she had said, there's a place that's supposedly the mother of all personal growth. And given that you're all about that, Miss Therapy, you know, why don't you take that on and maybe it'll help you handle this better. <laughs> she was so loving and generous. So, <laughs> oh, bless her heart and mine and mine. And you know what? At the time, there was no way, you know, I was, I was losing my ass, if you will. You know, I lost my business, my houses, that uncoupling, I, I could never say that that was conscious coupling. It was like unconscious uncoupling all over the place. And so it just wasn't the time to, I, w I was too strung out on losing what I, who I thought at that time was the love of my life, you know? So I, I wasn't in no place to go and maybe recognize that you know, I was 100% responsible for that loss. So I put it off for a few years. And then, as I said, in 2015, you know, I, I just, I had an inspiration. And that inspiration was someone in my life who had gone through and I saw the changes. 
And I just said, you know what? I want a piece of that. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Okay. <laughs> okay, I want some of that. And then I, I went in. I fundraised. I called up everybody I knew because I was coming out of being a student, you know, on a fixed income, if you could even call it that. And I'm like, y'all, please don't give me any of those weird gifts that you tend to give me. Save your money. Save me the private humiliation of the gift you gave. I'm just keeping it real so that I don't have to tell you I don't like the gift. Why don't you give me the gift that keeps on giving? And that is the gift of my life, of my soul, of my spirit. Okay. And you can invest in me growing myself up. Let, let's, let's do that. And I raised $4,000. And then to keep it real, even though you didn't ask, I'm going to just keep it real. I went on a payment plan, girl. I felt like I was on that, you know, Kmart back in the day. They had them blue light specials. Oh, I totally do. And you could put that stuff on layaway so you could take the blue light specials and put them on layaway. Girl, that's what I did. I put Hoffman on layaway and I paid that stuff off for a year, year and a half, and I would do it again. Mm. So was it, he, I mean, that's a lot of work just to get there. A lot of intention, a lot of communication, a lot of help, a lot of kind of funneling the energy and the finances, did it live up to your expectations? Girl, you know, you fishing for a compliment now. Well, shoot, I wasn't your teacher, but you know. <laughs> Girl, who poor Lisa Vanger. I don't think Lisa had any idea what she was getting into, baby. All I know is the first three days, I think they had to run down the street after me, okay? You're one of those. I'm one of those. There's a runner in her. And, you know, I, I was afraid of my own shadow. So it all made sense. It was hot. I mean, some of the topics that we addressed, it was so hot. I had no idea that I was as traumatized as I was. And although... The work we do is not directly about mitigating trauma. The reality is all of my traumas showed up. The multiplicities of my traumas showed up. And I know that I might be getting ahead of your questions, but I just want to say this before I forget. One of the things that I did not recognize because you know, as you know, I grew up in foster care in serious, in a seriously institutionalized way in a level 14 residential treatment center. And with that, there's no talking, there's no negotiating, it's medicating. So all the losses that I had gone through, I had never metabolized them. I had never, you know, as in the work we do, John Bradshaw, there is, there is this, there is this quote when we go through the shame experience and John Bradshaw says, there is no true healing until you can tell your story, tell your shame to someone who will not shame you for your shame. And I grew up, shame had the thundering velvet hand, right? There was no 
equity. There was this, this was not about having the experience being equitable. So I held in a lot. I had to hold in a lot, suppress a lot in order to ape the idea that I was okay, ape the idea that I was of sound, you know, mental health while I was slowly dying emotionally. So that by the time I arrived at Hoffman, by now I'm in my 50s, I have swallowed back my shame, drowned in my shame, have been so lost and dissociated from the truth of who I really am that by the time I got there, I was just, I was just erupting all over the place. And one of the things that was probably one of the most profound experiences is after, by day two, by the way, I knew I was going to be a teacher. So just to put that out there. <laughs> Talk about beating me to my questions. That was going to be my next one. Okay, keep, we're pinning that. We're going to revisit that one. Yeah, we're, we'll be revisit that. And then what was so cool is on compassion, I had no idea what I was about to experience. And given the life I'd lived, I had lost every single person who I loved my, you know, like emotionally and the sense of a disenfranchised grief and ambiguous loss. When you're abandoned, it doesn't mean that those who abandon you disappear, right? They disappear physically, but the emotion of who they are stays alive as long as the abandonment is in process. Right. So when, when, when one is abandoned, at least in my case, the abandonment rode shotgun with me every day of my life. So there was the abandonment of the mother, the father, losing the sisters, the brothers, the aunts, the uncles, the grandmas, the grandpas, the first, second, third associations. So that, that the energy of that followed me everywhere I went every day. And that's what I was continuously pushing up against. So when people died in my real world, I didn't know. I was never invited to a funeral. I never had that public acknowledgement of here's a casserole for your loss. You know, here, everybody's going to come over shrouded in black, and they're all going to have handkerchiefs and dot their eyes and blow their noses for, you know, memorializing my loss. Never in my life had I ever experienced anything like that. So when we get to compassion, I imagine everybody in that room wish they weren't in that room because I think I must have wailed. No, I must have yowled to the point of, uh, to the, to the point of, uh, of serious uh, disruption. So how... How is it that you're you're in your 50s, you had a lifetime of suppressing this, and yet in this very moment, boom, you had direct access to it. How do you explain that? In the very, this moment right now that we're talking about, or the moment? No, no, in the moment when you were in the process, when you were crying and wailing and really feeling the loss. How, how did that shift for you when, when you had so much in quotes, practice suppressing and not feeling it. And then here you are really feeling it. Whoo girl. So, I mean, one thing that I've always had going for me is the wherewithal to know that I needed talk therapy. So I had been a consumer of talk therapy since I was a child. That's 
the one takeaway that came with me when I emancipated from the system. Immediately in my 20s, because I emancipated at 19, I needed a little distance from that life. And within two to three years, by the time I was 21, I was back in therapy again. And and that became my one constant. So I knew how to talk about, to some degree, what had happened, but I, I wasn't able to access the pain in a conscious way where it could stand with me side by side or stand with me in front of me in a way that I could have a bit of psychodrama with it. I had never experienced, well, that's not true, but I hadn't experienced enough psychodrama. So by the time I got to Hoffman, I knew how to cry. I knew how to access my feelings. I knew that I hurt. I had a language for that. But what I had never done is expressed the the bioenergetics of my loss, of my trauma. And I had never had that psychodrama experience where I could literally go to some of the experiences, like when we go into the dark side, you know, you know what that's about, what we're asked to do. Well, I literally had the opportunity to pull these things out and and put them in their place, as we say, let me put you in your place. So I was able to put these things in their place. And because I am such a a student of Albert Einstein, when he says that imagination is more important and valuable than knowledge for me, this was like an, this was like my emotional child was jumping up and down because it knew what the intellect knew, if not even more so, right? It's like, I know as much as my intellect, if not more so that I need to get here. I need to do what these people are asking me to do. I need to commit to this experience. And because The school I attended, California Institute of Integral Studies, was all about experiential experiences for the adult learner. For me, I was like in emotional Disneyland, right? And I got all these nice white people who are saying, hello, sweetheart. It's a Hillary. Are you kidding me? By the time I was ready to, 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 to speak my shame and I got to speak it to Hillary girl, it was like the heavens rolled open and Michael was there blowing the horn and baby, we will all be being called to the promised land. Do you understand? By the time she leaned over and, and you know how the process that we do when we have to confess our shame, by the time she went through all those machinations, girl, I, baby, Lazarus was arisen. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and I was ready. I was ready to let all the darkness go. I told her things that, that only me and Jesus know. And to be able to do that, girl, I was baptized. I was delivered, period. Did that stay with you? Are are you now, you know, that bridge from talking to accessing, that bridge from talking to expressing, is that readily available for you in your life today? Absolutely. From talking to expressing. I mean, One of the things that I walked away from is permission. 
permission to be in my power, to be the center, the access point to all that is good about me. I've always known I'm good, right? I've always known that I am gifted, I'm good, that my spirit was, my spirit was never up for negotiation. You know, even through the child abuse, the neglect, I'm talking abhorring neglect and abuse. Somehow as a young girl, I always knew, oh, you may slice my flesh, you may, you know, squelch my voice, but you will not. My soul, my goodness is never up for debate. It is never up for grabs, like hands off. And I've always known that. So I think that and then getting to Hoffman and then moving from suppressing to expressing, that's a great, that's something that's catchy right there. Moving, moving from suppressing to expressing. And as you can tell, I am quite the loquacious one, right? And language arts is probably my genius. So it was perfect. It was, it was, it was a perfect combination of moving from intellect to the spiritual realm. So I had a chance to be let in to my own spiritual truth as opposed to being dissociated from it. So it's one thing to talk about the spirit, talk, talk, talk about the spirit. It's another thing to actually live from the spirit. And I will say that if you can imagine someone who's dissociated, they're split off from themselves and they're walking side by side, you know, conscious and unconscious, they're walking side by side. What I recognized when I expressed in the myriad of ways that I did at the process, when I confessed in the myriad of ways that we have the opportunity to do at the process, what that did is made room for who I truly am to get reordered in my in my human form and that was probably so I got to stay I got to get back into my body so I I was able to to heal a lot of the split and what we call the duality and to literally see and feel and experience the fulcrum of who I am you know, like before, I think I was living at 30% of my intellectual, brilliant capacity, you know, overworking, overworking all systems. When I left, I was at 100% of assimilated goodness, consciousness with the spiritual consciousness, with human consciousness, with, oh my gosh, my life now makes sense. And, you know, I know that I'm doing what I can right now to extemporaneously make room and sense for all this because it's not rehearsed. It's very organic. So yeah, I'm just recognizing that for myself that I don't have to get this perfect. There, there is no perfect way or right way to say this. It's just the organic responding extemporaneously in the moment to this like you said, you are so expressive. I mean, there, there is an energy to every single sound that comes out of your mouth. So, so perfect or not, there is, it is so felt, uh, your, your words. And so 
I'm curious, here you are having this amazing experience, um, possibly life-changing. You haven't said that, but I kind of gather life-changing experience at the process. And at one point, I guess, according to you on day two, you decided you wanted to be a teacher. Why? What was it about? What, What was the call? Because I've always been so open and so ready and so eager and so hunger to meet my true self. Like she's always been there knocking on the door and I just didn't have the courage to turn around and face her. I I believe that by day two, by the way that I loved Connie Comstock, I thought she was just a straight up kick-ass chick. She took, she, she kicked total booty and, and, and took names later. I love people like that strong, just like, in your face with no chaser. And then you had Lisa Wenger, who was just totally loving. And then there was Nita, who was in training. What I loved is the, the, the safety that I had never really felt in my life. I tapped into it there, you know? And especially because when I got there, someone had the audacity to call me by my childhood name And I was ready to go all Jill Scott on them, like get some Vaseline, take off my jewelry and be ready to fight. Okay. I'm like, say it again. (laughs) Right? Like what is going on people? But what I came to understand by day two is, oh my God, I don't know if I had ever in my life been somewhere where all of me could be in the same place without me having to Uh, repress or split off or hide or minimize or play small, I'm always looking to heal. My consciousness, my spirit is always looking for opportunities for me to heal. So the interesting thing for me about the Hoffman process is, remember, I grew up in group homes, lots of people processing groups, this and that. So in an interesting way, I felt that, oh my God, I walked into a context, a situation that contextually reminded me of how I grew up. People there are processing parents and this and that. I'm actually processing the systematic racism. I'm processing the systematic erasure. I'm processing the the systematic solitary confinement. I'm processing not only these parents, which to me are insignificant, to the systematic nightmare that also stood in as a parent for me. And it was the first time. And so so the, the interesting thing about it is that the systematic nature of what I experienced as a child to be in a intentionally curated environment that was very similar emotionally in that I'm with a lot of strangers because I grew up with a lot of strangers. I didn't grow up in a family. I learned how to navigate in those arenas beautifully. So for me, it was like being home. It, I felt safer than I've probably ever felt in my life. So first, I'm home, and 
And the people I'm with, unlike the people that I learned from in those institutions, these are educated, loving, intentional, and the, the, the crowning glory, spiritually in tune. So I grew up in institutions that wanted to squelch, minimize, and diminish the spirit. And so in a way, right, that's where I, that's where I had that experience of, you know, of people, you know, uh, coming for the spirit, so to speak. And that's what I had to defend against. Yet here I am in an environment that is the complete opposite, but it takes a certain amount of awareness to recognize that. So I was able to recognize that. So then I could come home, so to speak, in a way that was that was just unusual and particular to me. So when I recognize, oh, I love this. I can do this work. And at that time, you know, I had also been a spokesperson for young people in foster care. And I was still speaking and traveling the country. But I wanted to know, I want to do more than just be on a stage and be this foster care celebrity. Uh, that's great, you know, and sure, it's wonderful, but am I, are the young people really benefiting from this? And I, I wasn't seeing evidence of that. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to be a teacher. It's going to happen. I am going to bring this healing to as many black people. And I want all social workers, therapists, guardian ad litem, CASA workers. I want this to be a prerequisite before you even even think about coming in contact with America's most disenfranchised, I'm sorry, disenfranchised, most, you know, historically underrepresented and, and wounded, spiritually wounded, emotionally wounded people. So that's where I was going. You know, I kind of think big, big and global. So I thought, oh, I will be, I will be that one to bring this forth. It strikes me, and I might be wrong here, but it strikes me that you pay attention to messages. You've mentioned spiritually in tune. It seems like you get messages and you pay attention. For example, grad school. That would have been the kind of logical next step was continue on that year. But no, you, you, you kind of got some sort of insight, paid attention, and changed. Same here. You went to this thing. You had this feeling. You got the message. You got an insight and changed. And I just, I, I don't know, what's coming to me is your relationship to change. Mm, that's a nice pivot. So what I'm going to back up a bit, and because you are speaking my language now, messages and intuition and how the rhythm and hues of spirit so... So let me slow this down. I have to slowly back up and into the question you had about message. And there it is. Thank you, spirit. I see you. So here's the deal. I just knew that I was going to be a professor because I thought, you know what? I am so tired of traveling all over the country on Amtrak, okay? It's, it's exhausting, beautiful, wonderful, but exhausting. I just want to know what it's like to be in one place. So I'm going to be a professor. And when I'm a professor, 
because I am who I am. I'm going to make 200 G's a year in one place. They're going to take care of me. And I am going to buy a trailer in Malibu at Paradise Cove and live next door to Betsy Johnson. That's pretty much. And I'll just, you know, I'll just drive in Amtrak in to the school, probably UCLA, UCR. It's going to all work out for me, right? Like I'm down. Okay. That didn't quite work out. I knew I've always been a teacher. When I worked at Vidal Sassoon, I was a teacher. In every in my salons in Berkeley, I was a teacher, art director, you know, on and on and on. So I've always had this natural ability to teach. So as you say, listening to the message, when I at Hoffman in that last year, you know, I beat I beat out quite a few people to get that to receive, to be the, the, the recipient of that fellowship and to say no was, that was just like sacrilegious. I may have actually burned a bridge, but sometimes I think it's important, as you say, to listen to the nudges and to listen to the messages. And I knew that I was to be a teacher. I knew it. It's like, I am, I've always been. So who in their right mind could turn down the calling of a lifetime to be a teacher in in this way of knowing that I am a spirit as we all are trying to have a human experience. So I've lived these incredible human experiences and for a long time I thought they were for naught. I thought, what does my life matter? I am a nobody's child, right? Like are you kidding me? Everything in our culture is about who you belong to and the value of, of who you are based upon to whom and to what you belong to and are associated with. And all I've ever had was my spirit. So for the first time in my life, I have found a place where all of me is welcome, regardless of whether or not anybody wanted me. So now I'm in a place where I get to want me and the result and I get to have me freely without you know no drama no no compromise just me unapologetically so now I do work in a way whereas I literally I literally get to be both human and spirit well said do you feel like you had a similar call to share your story? I mean, you know, you've written three books, you've co-executive produced a movie, and I bet there's just still so much more. Is it similar journeys to these moments where you get this call and you pay attention and bring all your natural skills and make it happen? Yeah, it all comes in dreams, you know. You know, one of the things that I loved about the Queen's Gambit is I recognized myself. She had her her visions due to alcohol and drugs, you know, according to the film. That was the the gateway, the access to her own particular brilliance. 
But what I recognized is I learn in a very similar way and it's always been there. So I get the hit and then I go into my dreams and I don't really talk about this because it's so vulnerable and I get scared. <laughs> but you know what I did? I wrote about it. I wrote about it in in this next project, but I was very, 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 very vulnerable. And it's not the conversations that I know how to have, I've ever known how to have. But when I saw the Queen's Gambit, for the first time, I saw a bit of how I am put together. And what I've learned is, you know, we all have our intelligences. And I think for me, and designers and artists, it's it's about having strong spatial intelligence. So, you know, again, I didn't grow up in family, so I didn't really hear who I was or have my existence explained to me. So I've, I've been fortunate to be on this lifelong journey to understand and experience myself. So the result of that is, oh my God, I have a high sense of spatial intelligence. So for me, when in my dreams is when I connect to my inner world and it's almost like an Alice in Wonderland kind of movie or any kind of movie where you go into like a dreamscape and you're and I'm able to literally see every move. So just about everything I've ever done, like hair contests, writing contests, I've won them. You know, I don't I don't talk a lot about it, but at one point I had like a storage full of trophies, right? And because I never wanted to put it on my walls because I never wanted to have to explain how that, how that. So I've always been that person. I could see it one time. I could see it one time. I could feel it one time. And then I could replicate it down to every single detail there. So everything that I've ever done, I haven't had to go and necessarily study it for 10,000 hours because it's already in me at 10,000 hours. And so what I do is just put it out. You know, I just, I just put it out. So I would say everything that I've ever done, like all I do is take it to bed. My first hair cutting contest that I, I was competing against people who were four years my senior in the business and I'd only been in in six months. But again, I took it to bed and I won all three rounds of this massive national haircutting contest because I saw what needed to happen. I looked at a picture that Vidal Sassoon had written, had, had taken, and I knew intuitively how he achieved what he achieved and i was able to replicate that but that's in everything regina holy moly so basically you get this hit you dream about it you see it once i i literally see the queen's guy i see how you see all the all the all the makeup of it you feel it once yes and then boom you put it out there it's like geometry right so it's like I see how the I see how one thing moves and the next thing moves and then the next and then the next and then the next and then the next and I can see it and then you know how you have those smart 
whiteboards and you're able to push a button and then open it up and then see the next and then see the next and then see the next. Yeah, something like that. I almost see it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I almost see it like you're seeing things in reverse engineering. Like you see the end product. I need to tell my story. And then brrr, you, you, you kind of go from the end product back to the beginning. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. How did you know that? You got a little bit of spatial intelligence in you too? Not like you, honey. I mean, look what you've done in your life. But it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not, but I've had to. You have to understand. I think we, look, I'm no, I'm nothing special. We would all do this if we had to, because the spirit is going to, spirit is out to look, spirit is looking out for itself, honey. We do what, what spirit is called to do. But the difference is, is I think I just know how to get out of the way. Well, so yeah, so th this is, this is incredibly interesting. So we, we said step one, it's like Regina, three-step process. You get the hit, you take it. I like, I take it to bed. That's amazing. Um, I take it to bed and then I put it out there. And, and that's kind of like your three umbrella steps. A whole lot goes into each one of those. What do you mean? I get the hit. Well, I get out of the way. I trust in the universe. I surrender. That's what we mean by, you know, and, and, and the dreams, what happens there? That's where you see that spatial intelligence. Facial intelligence is really spirit recognizing itself. Yesterday, I moderated a panel and it was five people and it was, it was my uh, donation, if you will, for foster care awareness month, because I'm not traveling, doing that work anymore because of COVID. And one of the people you know, at the end, I asked them, so what would you say to vulnerable youth in terms of empowering them to continue on to have a better life? And, and so many people said, have hope, have courage. And for me, that's almost like an affront, right? I, I'm like, I'm, I'm like inside, I'm like cringing. Yes, yes, yes. I'm cringing. Because to me, not to pass judgment, I love people. They were doing a good job. We can't tell people to have hope. We have to tell people the truth of who they are to be hope. That's how I see it. So for me, that is how spirit gets in. And that's, that to me is how spatial intelligence comes alive, is to be, to be the thing. So when I think about what it means, I mean, think about it. What does it really mean? mean. Having hope to me is a bit passive. It's a little bit lazy. But to be a hope, Sharon, is a completely different endeavor. That is to step into the highest of high guides in my. You know, we talk a lot about spirit guides and spiritual self. And for me, to be a hope, to be, to embody the feeling of expectation, to be expectation, to be a desire for a thing to happen in a certain way, it's to be that, right? It's to trust that it already is. Like that thing, it already is. That already is. And if it already is, how do I permission myself? How do I allow myself to align with that which already is as opposed to waiting for it to show up and be? Uh, Regina, I 
Uh, can we keep talking for like three hours? I, I, I unfortunately have to bring this interview to a, to an end, but I think you need to come back for a part two for a sequel that, because there's just so much, I mean, this thing that we just talked about, this spatial intelligence and, and how you surrender and trust and then how you use all your skills. I mean, let's just be real. You've got skills. That's how we, you put it out there. I mean, you've got books, you've got movies. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, and I, for anybody who's listening, Regina has an incredible story. I can't even say that I know all the details, but check out her books, check out her memoirs, check out her book that she just published called permission granted kick-ass strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional love. Watch her movie. Um, like there is just so much inspiration. And the more I get to know you, Regina, honestly, the more I get to know you, the more amazed I am by your spirit and by who you are and by this journey and these gifts that you are giving to our world. You're welcome. <laughs> this was a very vulnerable interview for me. I, I shared things that I don't. So that's interesting. It honestly explains, I mean, I have not understood how you produce the way you do. I, I really, it is almost as if this physical realm doesn't exist for you. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I do know what you mean, of course, that the, the limits and the perimeters and all of that stuff. Yeah, right. But that's when we talk about space. So we're back to space. We're back to spatial and we're, we're back to space, the, the, the reality of spatiality. So. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Regina. I don't feel complete. I want to keep going. I'm just going to call this a pause, not an end. <laughs> yeah, I love you, sister, my sister, my comrade. I'm so fortunate that I get to do the work that we do and, and we get to do it. I'm very fortunate and I love you. I, I love you too. And, and thank you so much for being, like you said, I'm going to be real, being real, being vulnerable. I'm still completely, all my energy is like zzz, buzzing around this spatial intelligence piece. <laughs> I'm still there. I'm still there. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, somewhere in your DNA is to make an impact in our world and to help people and your books, your stories, your interviews, uh, every time you speak, I think is just another way to continue to deepen your positive impact in our world. And now as a Hoffman teacher. And now as exactly. And as a Hoffman teacher. Girl, do you know how exciting it is to see? I knew on day two, I said, yes, when spirit said, you better pay attention, girl. Okay. And stop trying to run down the street. And stop trying to call people to come and pick you up. Now sit your ass down and, and be good with this. And I did. And here we are. It's beautiful. And as a result, you crossed paths with me. And I feel very lucky. And then that right there. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, I bid you adieu. <laughs> Thank you, Regina. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. 
To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.